We're back at it here on Irish Illustrated Insider. I'm Tim Priester with Tim O'Malley from Irish Illustrated. We're joined by John Bryce of Football Scoop and Irish Illustrated and Pete Sampson of The Athletic. Big Junior Day weekend uh, last weekend. No verbal commitments to come out of that yet, but I I think we all can admit that there's a whole bunch of momentum going with Notre Dame's recruiting right now. There are 14 verbal commitments are more than double than just about any FBS team in the country. I know some may complain about who Notre Dame's taking at this stage of the process, but recruiting's looking up. Before we get into that and talk about Tommy Reese and winter workouts, um, it's really been a kind of a slow news week. Uh, but Gabe Rubio, Notre Dame's backup defensive tackle that was probably looking forward to entering the starting lineup, if Riley Mills went to the NFL, but he did not, he has stepped away for personal reasons. This impacts Notre Dame's defensive tackle and nose tackle depth charts. Let's kick that around a little bit, Tim O'Malley. Yeah, he's a, I mean, it, it's a loss if Rubio's not back with Notre Dame. Um, he's a top 40 player and probably the number one just ahead of Jason Anye. Um, I'd not say he's ahead of Jason Anye when he's healthy. Reserve interior defensive lineman. Uh, you got to stay healthy to be to stay ahead of Jason, of course. But Rubio missed three games, then another last year, and he of course missed all of 2021. I like Gabriel Rubio, the player, the res- and I think he's a fantastic reserve role. But the reserve role probably doesn't fit his mentality right now. No, it's. I mean, you're stuck. He's going into his senior year, and he's a dozen snap player per game. Uh, in games of significance, uh, Clemson, 13 snaps, Ohio State, 12 snaps, Louisville, zero snaps, Duke, 16 snaps. Um, that's just, I, I, I would understand if he was frustrated about the situation. And this is this is sort of the flip side of these COVID years and NIL being in place to get guys like Howard Cross and Riley Mills to come back. You're blocking the path to playing time for some other players who, in normal circumstances, would be getting it right now. No, like in a normal world, like six years ago, Riley Mills, Riley Mills isn't on the roster. Now he is. So Gabriel Rubio is probably a little frustrated by that. But um, I, I mean, I would go as far like I would. In terms of top reserves, I wouldn't say he's the top reserve interior lineman. I'd say he's the top reserve lineman um, on defense. Yes. Yeah. So. It's um uh, yeah, it's significant, but if the cost of getting Riley Mills back is Gabriel Rubio, then you are you pay that ten times out of ten. Yeah, and and, and with Rubio, yeah, going into his senior year, but just his his junior year from a from a playing experience standing and um he had some low snap counts last year coming back from the injury that he suffered in the Navy game, but he was also out there on the final series against Ohio State, which um I think says something about what coaches believed he could do there, uh, Pete. So, um, you know, I was this is say, could we get a 13th snap at yeah. Ohio State? <laughs> well, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that he was due the 13th hey, snap. Hey, no, if, uh, if part of life is showing up, he did his job on that driving against Ohio State. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, look, he's, yeah, to your point, Pete, exactly. He would probably start for a lot of teams. He would be, um, an extremely valuable person for Notre Dame, and he's a void that they um, have to begin developing as soon as spring ball starts. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when the news comes out about Riley Mills, you know, the coaching staff is excited and the the, the fans are excited and the, we talk about it and we're excited. Well, there's a handful of players that aren't excited and 
One of those is Gabe Rubio, uh, Jason Anya probably as well. But, you know, I mean, I think there's some upside. I, I have always felt like there was some upside with Rubio, the big body. I thought he showed some penetration skills at times last year, maybe to your point, Pete, maybe not against some of the better competition. But, uh, you know, with a defensive line that's lost defensive ends, I know we're talking about an interior defensive line. Every one of those bodies is is important, and and some of these other guys have to step step up. Donovan Heinish, people like that. Um, you know the 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 redshirt freshman defensive tackles. Brandon Vernon, we understand, is going to be a defensive tackle moving into this year. So um, yeah, just opens up the competition a little bit more this spring. And to be fair, I don't um, for listeners, it's it, you you don't want to sit Riley Mills against Clemson and Ohio State. It's not that Gabriel no. Rubio isn't good; it's that Riley Mills is better. So Rubio might have played great thirteen snaps against those. You know, I mean, you're still going to play Mills, but you got to play Riley Mills fifty five. Uh, yeah, I mean, like as a as a goal line option, which is you know to John's point, you know, you're against Ohio State, you're down at the goal line, like as your third defensive tackle because you're going big, like. That's wow, what a what a luxury that is to have. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a really valuable part of the roster, even if his snap counts maybe would not suggest it, or is, wouldn't suggest he's as valuable as he actually is. Actually, uh, I don't like to use uh, PFF's college grades because I think it's just some people hanging out doing grades. But on topic, I just clicked it real fast. Notre Dame versus Clemson, the number one ranked defensive player was Gabriel Rubio. Gabriel Rubio. Oh, there you go. <laughs> So he had to have a pretty good day. That's that's, that's a good effort. Notre Dame had the big uh, junior day last weekend. Adults are dressing up like leprechauns and dancing around the the campus, which I find to be pretty interesting. But I thought it was a. Uh, I thought of you, Tim, right away. Did you? <laughs> I immediately thought you, of you. Yes. Why would you? Why would you think that? <laughs> you. I, I knew that when you saw that, <laughs> you were going to. My delicate sensibilities get offended by a lot of things. I knew <laughs> yours were going to be by that one right there. <laughs> so you're telling me, you're telling me, Tim, when you played baseball at Notre Dame, you weren't greeted by someone. In oh, Oregon. yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, there was a, it was a uh, red carpet that they carried me in on when, when that recruiting weekend came about. Look, hey, man, whatever works. I, 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 it was a, it was a big weekend for Notre Dame. It was a productive weekend. And as I said at the top, of the show that nobody has verbally committed, but uh, there's a reason why Irish Illustrated has been doing film reviews on Jack Lang, the offensive tackle, who I think has a chance to be really sensational. Um, Dallas, think- Dallas Golden, the, the, the uh, kind of, kind of safety cornerback uh, out of Tampa. That's a really good football player. Uh, um, Zachary, uh, the fourth, another, Another DB, probably more of a nickel corner kind of guy. None of those guys have verbally committed, but things are looking good. And then, you know, I know things look good for uh, Norton feels strongly good about Damian Shanklin, who I I, I think can be a difference maker off the edge. A couple of uh, uh, offensive linemen, uh, Maddie Augustine and uh, Owen Strabig and uh, Strabig and um, the wide receiver, I think we talked about him last week, Plaxico Burris' son, man. I think there's a ton of upside there. So, you know, with the 14 verbal commitments, I know the flip side of that is, yeah, but look at the number of three stars you have in there, and there aren't any five stars in there. Look, it's Notre Dame. Notre Dame has to do things differently. They've got to have leprechauns dancing around, and they've got to create a weekend of culture and team building um, in, in, in lieu of – 
maybe some of the bags of money that are passed around on some recruiting weekend. So Notre Dame has to do it a little bit differently. Uh, and I and I thought they really did a great job last weekend. It's also yeah, dangerous was, to have Wolverines dancing around as opposed to yeah. leprechauns if you're going to let you, people You've know. been watching too many Heisman House commercials, T.O. Uh, <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, I think Notre Dame uh, is in good shape with Zachary. I think Notre Dame further solidified itself with Zachary. And the other thing for uh, Drake Brown and Chad Bowden and whoever, Carter Allman or somebody else around there dancing in leprechaun outfits, everybody's talking about dancing leprechauns instead of the fact that it was – basically zero degrees and snow all over the ground last weekend. So when you don't have palm trees and sunshine to showcase, <laughs> you send some guys dancing in the middle of the road, directing traffic dressed as leprechauns. And nobody talks about how crappy the weather was last yeah, weekend. Fair enough. That's fair my, enough. That's Jamie. my take. Good, good rebuttal. I'll, I'll buy that one. And I think what last year they did sort of secret service uh, out costumes. And then they also did referee costumes. And I think it's just like, I think the Bowden, uh, Dre Brown, that group, they do a really good job of pitching Notre Dame to the kids. Um, and I think like Notre Dame is naturally going to attract itself to parents, but you got to have something for the kids themselves. And I think it's a good way to sort of like, hey, this is a serious place, but it's a little bit disarming when you see somebody walking up to you in a leprechaun costume. And it's like, I think it just sort of puts people at ease, uh, the kids at ease, at least um, in a way that's, that's smart. It's a good sales pitch. And I, I will just add and, and wrapping up my, my point of view on things, as, as most of you guys know, I just got back from AFCA in Nashville and spent a lot of time with uh, personnel directors from multiple schools and multiple conferences, but especially a number of sec people. And, um, I had at least four different personnel people from around the country and three of them in the SEC asked me like, hey, bro, what's Notre Dame doing? How are they recruiting like this? They've never been like this before. There are people in the SEC specifically paying attention to Notre Dame recruiting that would tell you four years ago they didn't encounter Notre Dame when they were talking to prospects or they didn't they didn't fear Notre Dame when they talked to prospects. And now there's a great awareness of what Notre Dame is doing in recruiting in the SEC, you guys have exponentially more depth of perspective than I do as that pertains to Notre Dame. But for me, in the past few years that I've been around here, that is a significant change in my opinion. Let me let me just, before we move on to the next topic, let me just say, I, I, I just want to clarify, Chad Bowden and, well, I mean, it all starts with Marcus Freeman, but Chad Bowden and Dre Brown are doing a great job. And I, I don't, I don't want to I don't no, want to detract. I don't want to detract from that. And and your point, John, is is well taken. They've got 14 verbal commitments. Yeah, the rest of the country is saying, "What yeah. what's going on? What are they yeah. doing? What are they doing differently?" Because they wouldn't. I mean, 14 is a big number at this stage. And and Bryce Young is now suddenly a five star, and he's on campus. And so who knows where some of these three stars at now are going to be a year from now when they get to campus or whatever. And I also think. Um, you trust this staff's uh, ongoing ability to evaluate with some of the guys they've identified early and been able to hang on to. I actually no saw a really good post related to this one minute before the podcast. And later on, I'll go find it and give credit to who posted it. He said uh, in the portal era, and he's talking about the, the classes already on campus. If you really like a guy like Teddy Rezac, who was a bit of a project, but I think we all like Teddy Rezac. And there's a, guy, a lot of guys like that. It's a great time to take a chance on 
I don't know what I keep using Rezac as an example. So let's say it's a great time to take a chance on a person you like that you think you have to develop in the portal era, because if he doesn't develop, you go to the portal. Yeah. It's not a five-year investment in trying to develop. No, if he doesn't develop, he is going to go somewhere think, else and you get a portal player. I think we're still trying to, you know, get our minds right on some of those things that you forget. You know, you forget that, that, that there's a yeah. quick switch. General I, it, manager. Need general yeah, managers. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Tommy Reese, Notre Dame's former quarterback, Notre Dame's former offensive coordinator. I think we all anticipate, I anticipated he'd land a, a, a coordinator's role on the collegiate level. Uh, and I think he had that opportunity, kicked the tires at, at maybe more than one place, and then was given an opportunity to be passing game coordinator and tight ends coach, which I, you know, for a lot of people, when they hear that, it's 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 a step down. Call it whatever you will. I don't. I I think Tommy Reese's days in college football are, are over unless he becomes a a head coach on that level. But this is a foot in the door as passing game coordinator. I wrote about it briefly in my Thursday thoughts. Again, I don't think that he comes back to college from the NFL, and I think that he's a lead coordinator. Let's just say by twenty twenty six. And um, I'll go back and that's yeah. Um, well, let's not lose sight of the fact that he had a multi-year, two million dollar a year contract with Alabama, so he's still getting a hell of a paycheck from the Crimson Tide as he transitions into the NFL. Another thing I'll point out is he, he's even for a long time was running an NFL offense at Notre Dame, and I had coaches specifically remark to me in the last playoff uh, Notre Dame playoff appearance when they lost uh, maybe thirty-four to fourteen to Alabama. Um, we did some stuff at Football Scoop at the time, and I had a number of coaches say, you can absolutely see what he's trying to do, and he does good stuff. He does not have the players there at Notre Dame right now to do it, um, but you could see. And and they talked about the fact that he's got pro concepts. He was getting guys prepared for the next level, and, yeah, I completely agree with you, TP. I think the pro game is where he fits, and, look, this is his second foray into the NFL, so he knows exactly how it operates and under, uh, and and needs to work. I mean, my, yeah, I what I would add to that is I thought when he took the job for Alabama, his goal was to be in the NFL within two years and he's there in one. Yeah, I thought that maybe he would be a college head coach out of Alabama, but you could easily be uh, an NFL position coach or coordinator out of Alabama, too, if you're a coordinator. So, like, it's got those uh, be Sirianni, Steich, and McVay, LaFleur. I mean, Tommy Reese knows people in the NFL, which it doesn't even include who he's working for in Cleveland. So, I think that he will, if he does a good job there, he will be on the short list as an offensive coordinator at the NFL level. I agree with what Priester said there, probably within two years. Yeah, I would. Uh, I hadn't really considered what you said, John, about the, the contract from Alabama, but they owe him. So, um, yeah, that worked out. Uh, he, he's he's going to be paid pretty well in the uh, 2024 calendar year. I think, so, uh, yeah. yeah good, I uh, I was just, I would, I would just add. I think he had a three-year deal at Bama, so I think, yes, I think so Alabama's on the hook for four more million dollars to Tommy Reese, and, and I'm not sure what kind of offset or mitigation he had. There may not be any um, for going to the NFL. So Nick Saban financially ruined Alabama, is what you're saying? <laughs> all that. I think they'll survive, TL. I, I think they'll be just fine. Hey, we're gonna uh, wrap up segment one. A week ago, when they were two days into workouts, we were asked about any any impressions, any feedback from the workouts, and 
in my typical cynical way, I said, they've been working out for two days. Well, it's been nine days now. And uh, we got a little bit of feedback. Uh, Pete, I, I'm going to let you go first on this. Um, apparently, you got a little insight into how Nordame's new strength and conditioning coach, Lauren Lando, uh, approached this in his introduction to the Nordame football players. Yeah, Lando's approach is, is which makes sense, much more professional. Um, than college in the sense of I don't think he comes into this looking to motivate or fire people up but I think that uh with Bayless spent a lot of time like getting the guys hyped before workouts and you'd see the videos where they're running into the the you know to squat racks and there's smoke machines and strobe lights and I don't think that's going to be Lando's approach Lando told the team I'm going to treat you like professionals until you show me that I shouldn't. So until they show that they're not worthy of, you know, sort of that more professional approach, that's how he's going to run the shop. Um, and I think that for, for older players in particular, that was very well received for, for younger players who are sort of building themselves into college football players. We'll, we'll see, but um, I, you know, I, at a place where the default, personality is pretty high achieving i think that went over pretty well yeah in accordance with that you know i think matt bayless was was a you know a little bit more old school um yeah. you know more traditional approach to 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 football strength training and with lando who has had a lot of individual work i think it's more you know full body full range of motion mobility type things now you can argue against that uh, if you want, especially the first time we hear of more than one hamstring pull, because that was that was, uh, you know, the, the alarm that was sent out as soon as the name was was first thrown out there. But, you know, his approach is his background is more with the, the individual approach. And I don't think there's any doubt that there's a, a learning curve uh, for him, especially in dealing with schedules of Nordic football players and trying to balance them because, They've got to go to class. They've got to meet with academic advisors. Those all have to be worked into the, the whole process. So I think that's going to be an ongoing learning process, but uh, it's more of a modern day approach. And the, the, um, you know, as I said, the, the full range of motion, the, um, you know, the, the, the full body workout, as opposed to just squats, just, you know, bench press, et cetera. I'm probably oversimplifying it with, with Matt Bayless and I don't want to be unfair, but it is a more modern day approach to what they're trying to do. And, and I would note that's exactly what Marcus wanted going into the interview right. process when he right, approached right. people and he was very thorough and he talked to a David blue at, at Georgia, or I mean, at Alabama, and he talked to an Aaron Wellman at IU and Aaron Wellman, um, I, I think they had a good conversation. Aaron Wellman made it clear his goal was to be back in the NFL. And as we alluded to on the podcast a few weeks ago, um, that was his goal. He's now back in the NFL with the New York Giants. But then his conversations were the same with Lauren Landau. And uh, it is. Marcus Freeman wants to see these guys maximized completely and exhaustively with um, a different approach, a more, I would say, technical approach to, to kind of what you were saying, TP. And it is about maximizing individual uh individual ability um and then incorporating that into the whole I have two takeaways from it is that's 
exactly what Freeman says when he says challenge everything. You want to, you're looking to change things up a little bit. And I want to quote our uh, even things that work. So I'm going to quote the late great Lou Samoji on every coaching and strength and conditioning change. There is no such thing as bringing in a guy that does things the same way. It's always, if you're changing offense, we're more up-tempo. If you're changing defense, we're more aggressive. If you're changing to strength and conditioning, we're changing the way we do these things. It's, it is the way it is. And it's, it's logical too. It wasn't only cynical the way he said it. Now it's cynical because you're five and seven and you change things. But it, it, in this case, it, that's not being cynical. And, and you see it with Notre Dame's roster. Um, and you've seen it in the recruiting that Marcus Freeman has talked about going all the way back to the, being a defensive coordinator. He wants this team to be faster top to bottom. That's not just in recruiting. He wants this team to be trained to be faster, as fast as possible as well. And again, I think that's where uh, Landau and his background and his approach tie into things. Uh, the, uh, there's a million things I miss about loose emoji. The, the cynical loose emoji is one of them. The amount of time it took him to proof a page was not one of them. Yes. <laughs> Coming back, segment two, burning up the boards. Welcome back to segment two, burning up the boards. Our first question is from TK Browns 84. Was leaving Notre Dame a good career decision for Tommy Reese? I think ultimately so. Um, obviously, if you're in a situation, look, you you barely get a chance to go from Notre Dame to Alabama, which are, you know, inarguably two of the four brands in college football history. Uh, so I think uh, for further career development as well, you look at um, <clears throat> the guy that, that Tommy Reese replaced was Chip Long, and he's still trying to revitalize his career after an unceremonious exit from Notre Dame. Tommy Reese went to the kingpin of college football. Um, I talked about this with coaches at, at AFCA again 10 days ago, whatever it was, two weeks ago. You always reset your career a year early in coaching rather than a year too late. And Chip Long would tell you to this day that's what – maybe effed him the most in his career development is that he turned down a couple of really nice head coaching jobs, I guess, after the 18 season. Um, and he could have gone and done some, some really good things. Uh, so again, yeah, I think it was good for Tommy Reese. You can't complain about where you're at right now. You can't complain about having already made $2 million from uh, Alabama, the Crimson Tide owe you another 4 million. He'd made 2 million from Notre Dame his last year here. Um, and now he's in the NFL, and and again, he runs an NFL offense. He has an NFL mindset, and there's no recruiting in the NFL. I, I think it was a good decision for him, but I'm very wholly in the camp for all coaches, and I've talked about it with, with a number of coaches. You always reset your clock a year early rather than a year too late. And and I like Chip Long, but his career is, is an unfortunate um, reflection of resetting a year too late. I don't think that uh, – and I've made, tried to make this point a number of times – like. If you know Tommy Reese, you know how important professional development is to him. There is, and there are two places he wanted to go. Um, maybe even a year before uh, when Marcus Freeman got the head coaching job, and that was Alabama and Georgia. He wanted to work for Saban or he wanted to work for Kirby because those are the best head coaches in college football. It's the ultimate finishing school for your profession. Um the finances that he got out of it are amazing. He got an SEC championship. He got to coach in the college football playoff again. I don't, I don't see how that could be viewed as anything but like a no-brainer decision, even though it ended the way that he did. I think that if you got Tommy Reese and said, everything plays out exactly how it did, do you do the move again? I mean, he doesn't even think twice about it. Does not even think twice about it. 
Great, great point, Pete. And I, uh, let me just quickly add uh, to to that and career development. He he was on a path to um, be a head coach. Probably one more year at Alabama as offensive coordinator. If things don't change, and Jalen Miller coming back, he probably has a great opportunity to be an SEC or a Power Five head coach. And to your points about Saban and Kirby Smart, who are three of the most prominent or hottest or highest paid coaches right now in all of college football? Dan Lanning at Oregon, Steve Sarkeesian at Texas, Lane Kiffin at um, Ole Miss, Kiffin and Sark obviously rehabilitated and revived their careers under Bama. Dan Lanning is a um, Kirby Smart disciple, and Glenn Schumann is a name now at Georgia that will be a head coach much sooner rather than later. I really can't add much to to that portion of the narrative, and I've never been one to determine somebody that's making two and six million dollars from Alabama to determine what was best for them and what wasn't. I mean, who who are we to make that judgment? But uh, yeah, I think it's all worked out very well for Tommy Reese. Would he like, you know, ideally he goes from here to either walking into a head coaching situation or in, in college or going to the NFL as the offensive coordinator. It's not quite that, but as I, as I predicted, uh, I think that's going to happen in, in in short order. So Tommy Reese knew what he was doing. He's in full control of his career. He has been since he was named offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. And I, uh, I agree with you, Pete. I don't think there are any, I don't think there'll be any regrets with Tommy Reese. We have, uh, two questions, but JB, you want to add to that? The last, the only thing I would add, I apologize, would be sure. also Tommy Reese got an interview to be Alabama's head coach after Nick Saban retired, and Nick Saban counseled him in that interview process and gave him some pointers. Tommy Reese doesn't get an interview to be Alabama's head coach if he's not already at Alabama as the program's offensive coordinator, and I think that, that once again, that's an invaluable experience that he got. And and look, if they couldn't have worked out an agreement with Kalen DeBoer, then you don't know where things go. But but again, he got that interview. He was a part of that process. And I think that also helped his career and professional development. No doubt about that. Uh, a couple of questions paired together. I'm not sure that they're exactly alike, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. Uh, Irish, uh, let's just start with the first part. Uh, Irish from A2, if you had to put your money on it, which of these players would you bet uh, end up as All-American caliber players at Notre Dame? Uh, Irish from A2 lists five players, Jalen Sneed, Bubakar Traore, Josh Burnham, Brennan Vernon, or Jaden Osbury. Maybe you want to throw another name in there. It's your call. Uh, I'm just going to stick with these five because predicting All-Americans out of freshmen is tough. So Traore is my choice if I had to pick one of these five players. I would also go with Traore for this question and the next question that Tim hasn't read yet. Um, <laughs> That's why I put them together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I and I that w- one bit on younger players that I've heard was is this like sort of a don't be surprised if, but don't be surprised if Troy is the best viper on the team next year. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I um I'm pretty high on Traore, Burnham, and Osbury, not to to slight the others. So I love the upward uh, mobility of all three of those and what the the runway appears for their careers. Traore is going to play at a spot that's going to lend himself potentially as he continues to develop, to have some really user-friendly statistics that help in those All-American campaigns. If he's out there making highlight plays, sacking quarterbacks the way we saw uh, his activity level during that open practice last August at school field, 
those are moments that can help a guy um, advance into All-American status. Yeah, and, and yeah Osbury, I got Osbury second in his class. Um, it's not out of sight, out of mind. It's just, as JB pointed out, I see the path right now for Traore. Um, I'd want to see, I want to see where Osbury settles in at, at what position. It was an interesting talk having with uh, a conversation with Kaiser when he's like, I was like, Osbury can do a lot of things. You know, where do you see him settling in? He's like, on one hand, I don't want him to settle in because he has to know everything. On the other hand, if you don't settle in, you're seen as a jack of all trades and maybe you're a backup everywhere. It's it's a catch 22. And he was obviously talking about himself when he pointed that out. But maybe there's a lot of Kaiser and Osbury. Yeah. Well, at least the situation anyway. But um yeah, I mean, to answer the question, I, none of us are picking Jalen Sneed. That doesn't mean we don't think, I mean, I think that he can, I think there can be some All-American moments for him in the next couple of years. Uh, but I just, I don't think he'll necessarily be consistent enough to to earn, uh, you know, that those kind of accolades. But I, I you know, I for me on this list, Traore jumps out at, at me as as somebody that could absolutely be that kind of guy. And I think, I think there's, I would agree that, I think there's a very good chance this year that that we're going to see uh, him perform at a very high level at the Viper position where there's a need. I think Osbury has a great future ahead of him. I'm really fascinated by Brennan Vernon moving inside. I've, I've never really been exactly sure where I thought he was going to end up. I, initially, he got down to a weight and a size that made sense at strong side defensive end. I just like his mental makeup. I think Me that too. he's a... I think he's a, now again, understand where I'm coming from here. I'm talking about an asset. I think he's a Bosa-like head. He's got a Bosa-like head to him. You know, that kind of that kind of crazy freewheeling, I'm great and I know it, uh, you know, kind of guy. Not saying he's going to be a Bosa brother, but I think that he's kind of got that makeup. Burnham, I just, I'm not picking Burnham because I thought that he would have made a greater move at this point, if he was going to be an All-American. But again, I think Josh Burnham is primed to be in a situation where it's like, okay, there's Josh Burnham. There's the consistency that you were hoping for when you saw him play as a freshman and sophomore. The I second like Vernon. I'm sorry. I like Vernon inside because I, I, I'm not going to say Bosa because you did it, but I like his approach too. And I don't ever, and to be fair, I don't think he'd ever be quick enough to be a really good strong side player where he can be quick enough to be a really good defensive tackle. That's fair enough. The other part of the question was from Shamrock, uh, Florida, pick a dark horse breakout candidate in 2024. Think Xavier Watts in 23, Benjamin Morrison in 22, Samson and I are thinking Treori in, in 24. So Christian gray is not a break is not a, is not a dark horse, right? doesn't work there. Uh, no, I mean, I think that I, yeah, I think you could definitely answer him if he's, he's like pick. a starting corner. Yeah, he's my pick. If he counts. Uh, I think for me, it's it's Jaden Osbury. Um, I think we saw, even in limited scope, um, a great deal out of him in the 23 season. And then he played the four games early and wanted to preserve, I believe, that red shirt year. And, of course, playing in the bowl didn't impact that. Um, but I think Jaden Osbury's football IQ has been something that's already stood out to me. I think now um, with the experience, the very valuable experience he got in limited role 2023, another year in the program here in the offseason, full spring, all of that, a, a great a chance to carve a greater role um, because of where things are 
at that position. All of those things defensively would have me would have me there for him. Um, and then I'm going to cheat and go offensively as well. He has to stay healthy, and he's probably not a dark horse, but I still believe the top-end ability of Eli Raritan can make him a complete difference maker for this Notre Dame offense moving forward. Yeah, I think the good thing is that we're mentioning a bunch of different guys from the same class, and so that's that's a real positive moving forward. Um, long question here uh, from Eclectic Irish. Is it foolish to think that Nordheim's current method of pressuring the quarterback, i.e. lockdown man coverage, multiple blitz package, uh, is sustainable? It seems we're having much a much easier time recruiting and developing corners than we are edge rushers. I know in an ideal world you want to get pressure from your front four, but I also feel the confusion and frustration of near-constant blitzing and not knowing where it's coming from can and has been extremely effective is this an absolutely insane notion um retaining l golden allows this to continue if you gave l golden julian aquara at viper jerry tillery khalid kareem and kept howard cross there he would not blitz as much he'd send yeah. those four guys and they'd get home yeah it's uh i think this is a byproduct of who you have at linebacker um uh, also, who you have a corner, who you have a defensive coordinator. Um, I You can't play this way all the time, but I would expect Notre Dame to probably be able to play this way again next season. Yes, this coming season, for sure, they can play that way. And, and that's that's not a bad thing. It's testament to the personnel being good enough to give you that chance. And when you watch the NFL playoffs um, last weekend, that's what they were doing. That's the the Chiefs were coming after Josh Allen to try and make him uncomfortable and, and risking – the man-to-man, and um, that's the highest level of football. It's it's more of a calculated risk uh, at the collegiate level, especially when you have the personnel that Notre Dame has in its secondary. You always want a combination. I mean, but but every head coach wants to be able to to get to the quarterback with four down linemen. Why? Because you have eight in pass coverage as opposed to seven. I mean, it just it's it's a numbers game. So. Um, Am I adding it up right? No, I got yeah, no, not at all. That was seven instead okay. of six. I got twelve men on the field. That's better than ten. No, I mean it's it's a number. My numbers are bad, but uh, uh, but my numbers are four and seven. Be so you'd 10. rather have no, you'd rather have eight in, in, in coverage, wouldn't you, with four down linemen? But you get my point. I apologize for being stupid there. But seven in coverage as opposed to, um, yeah, you, you know, six is better, and so. Anytime you can get home with the, uh, you know, with the down lineman, of course, you're going to go that way. But what what he has done, what L. Golden has done with his blitz package has been absolutely beautiful. It started two years ago and then, of course, picked, went to a different level this year or this past year. And the reason why it went to a different level is because they knew the defense. You've got veteran players coming back. And anytime you're in the second year, you're just going to be better at it than you were the first year. It's super fun to watch now, and it'll be fun to watch this year. Um, but to JB's point real fast, for those that fans of the Chiefs for a long time, uh, if Kansas City had Neil Smith and Derek Thomas, they wouldn't have been throwing so many blitzes at Josh Allen. It, the, the ability to get there with four is still the greatest tool, greatest value there is, but just, it's very hard to do. And, and there's only one team in college football that has done it consistently for the last three or four years, and that's Georgia. And you look, and they've had a bunch of first-round guys yeah. on that defensive line that has cleared their path. Even Bama has had to blitz more in recent years. Um, when you look at 
what they've done with uh, Anderson and some of those guys. They've had to blitz more because they haven't had the same front four that Georgia's had. Next question from ND Band 94 Based on the players Notre Dame has going into the spring, I think most would expect a playoff appearance. And he adds, and at least around one win. What do you feel is most likely to happen? No playoffs, playoffs, but no win, playoffs and a win, or playoffs and keep winning? Go ahead, guys. <laughs> All right, I'll go. Um, I fully expect Notre Dame to be in the playoffs. I think with their schedule, what they return, the fact that um, they got exactly who they wanted yet again at quarterback out of the transfer portal on um, the year three of Marcus's system. They retained Al Golden once again. They kept Mike Mickens. They brought in Mike Denbrock. I think all those things. I think it absolutely should be. It needs to be a playoff season for Notre Dame in terms of whether it's a win or a loss. That's hard to project. If if Notre Dame is is one of those five through eight teams that gets to host the first round, then I expect Notre Dame to – be in the playoff and to win at least a game. I would go uh, playoffs, no win, most likely. Playoffs, one win, second most likely. No playoffs, third most likely. And least likely playoffs and two or more wins. I'm the Uh, exact same thing. I just like, it's hard to know with the matchup because if they're, if they're the five seed and they're hosting Tulane or Liberty, like that's a win. Um, I don't know how gratifying that will feel, um, but it's a, it'll be a win. But if you're going to Columbus in your first round game, like that's a hell of a lot harder. Um, and I mean, these, the opening round playoff games essentially are new Year's six bowl games. Notre Dame hasn't won one of those since the 1993 season. So it's kind of hard to say, Hey, they're good. Predict they're going to win that kind of game today. They easily could. Um, but it's tough. That's a tough, tough game. Uh, you know, I've said, and until I see spring practice and, and am dissuaded from thinking this, I'm expecting a really quality year from Notre Dame because of everybody that's coming back, because you got your defensive coordinator back, because you got the offensive coordinator that you were looking for. Uh, no playoffs is a terrible disappointment. I expect Notre Dame to be in a position to host, you know, the first playoff game. And so therefore I think that that, uh, you know, I, I think they win a game. I think they make the playoffs and they win a game. And then anything after that is is gravy. Yeah, there it I is. Think Jan- January, yeah. January ahead, 25th. I was just going to say January 25th, 2024. The battle lines are drawn. TP and I are in one camp. Samson and O'Malley in the other one. Let's go. Yeah, I, was, I think if they, if they host, host. If Notre Dame hosts, they will win. <laughs> right. If they host, I, I they so will too. win. I'm just... Not yeah, right, and I'm saying I agree. Host. I agree, and I'm saying I think they will host, and they will. And I'm going to have twelve guys on the field defensively. So yes. my chance. <laughs> well, as you know, if you yes, figure out that you only have ten guys on the field, you can run a bunch of guys on and get a two-inch penalty, and then go ahead and start restart the play. I, if I could just clarify, what the reason I had eight in my mind was because I was also thinking that if you can put pressure on a quarterback with four, there are times where you're going to be semi-effective with a three-man rush, and now yeah. you're really strong on the back end. Especially but with Derek Thomas blitz. and Neil Smith. Here we go. Now we're in business, Yeah, that, well, yeah. No, I, yeah, they don't have defensive ends like that. But, uh, you know, certainly, no, I, ex- I expect great things from this team. Now, something happens in the spring. An injury occurs in August. Things can change. I don't believe in making a pick in January and then having to stick to it. That's That's crazy. I mean, the game changes too much. 
I was simply going math, and I think Pete was too. So, like, I expect them to make the playoffs because I think they'll be one of the 12 best teams. So they have to be between 5 and 12. There's a 50% chance they're going to play a really good – there's a good chance they're going to be in a 50-50 game, whoever they play, unless they get the group of five. So you have, like, one out of eight chances there to have a guaranteed win. You have three chances to have a probable win at home, and then you got to go on the road in a 50-50 game with the other four chances. That's yeah. just – it's just yeah. hard to do. I mean – you're playing the, you're going to be playing the best team you played all year possibly oh, without, in the first tournament game. I'd say that without question it'll be the best team they play all year unless, unless you get the group Liberty. of 5 team. But... Yeah. All due uh, respect to Liberty. Question from Annie Davis all season long it was iterated that losing Matt Bayless would have little or no effect on the season as quote most of his work was during the off season. Both John Bryce and another ND Beat podcast have hinted recently that that was not the case and that the team struggled in part because of his departure. So which is it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, as the season wore on and I talked to people in the program and, and things got wrapped up after the season, I think that um, people were ready to acknowledge, especially by the time November rolled around, they, met, they missed Matt Bayless. That's not a knock on anyone else um, that was there. It's not a knock on Fred Hell or anybody else that had to, to fill in. But, yeah, you have that sort of sudden change that's completely wholly unexpected literally two days after you wrap up your summer program to begin preseason camp. I think it was inevitable to have an impact, and people that uh, know the program intrinsically better than me and smarter than me would tell you they'd felt the absence of Matt Bayless as the season wore on. Pete, do you have a perspective on that? Uh, I I think that probably by the end of the season, you would feel it a little bit more. But I, until somebody could sit there and tell me, like, this is how we felt it. Like, we had this hamstring injury, or we saw our player loads in November uh, redline more quickly than we thought. It's kind of, it's very anecdotal. Um, I would also say, like, Fred Hale got an interview for the job. So, he couldn't have done Right. That poorly, right? Um, but Matt Bayless is great at his job. And when somebody's great at their job and they leave your organization, eventually that's going to catch up to you. Um, I think the only thing I said on Matt Bayless was if there was a time to leave, he actually left at the best time because the plan for training camp was already set. Um, but that's different than revisiting that in November and saying like, hey, we've lost five receivers due to hamstring injuries. What's happening here? Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, it's hard to say, as I've said a bunch of times, like I think evaluating strength and conditioning coordinators probably were the least qualified of any coach to do that. Um, so I, I can't sit here and pound the table that they, they missed them or they didn't. Next yeah, question. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, John. I would just wrap it up by saying, yeah. So I'm not pointing a finger at anyone as being to blame. I'm saying the absence was felt. Yeah, Tim, you don't have you have a comment on this? Yeah, I would I would feel that when you lose a strength and conditioning coach, you absolutely did not want to lose. You would have there would be an impact. I mean, they didn't want to lose Matt Bayless. No, no I would agree, but I, I mean, uh, make an interception in the fourth quarter of the Ohio State game, and now you're going to Louisville yes. undefeated, and and everything is everything's different. I mean, I just think that it's you look at it and you say, oh, you lost three times. Okay, well, yes. you know, I just think it's a That's little it. bit revisionist based upon. I think that was Pete's point. Loss number three was when they started to feel the loss of Matt Bayless a little bit too. Like, that's, yeah, and oh, it's just like, I mean, is was Matt Bayless going to call that pass play from Hartman to Holden stays? No. Um, so it's kind of, I don't, it's just hard for me to 
a sign like, oh, this is the reason the Clemson game went the way that it did. I don't, right. I don't know. Was, was Matt Bayless going to put uh, Jordan Faison on the field at the in, at the end of the the game against Clemson as opposed to Tobias Merriweather? I mean, he should have. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not him, but. Actually, that'd been a really awkward uh, interaction if Matt, yeah. if uh, one Bayless, of the strength and conditioning coordinators tried to get Faison on the field. He just walked out <laughs> onto the field like, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> Question for ND Dan106. Great story on Irish Illustrated on Michael Floyd from Tim Priester. Do you see similar skills amongst any of Notre Dame's new or returning receivers? Any chance some of those records get broken with Dembrock at the helm calling plays? No. Double Mike no. Floyd? Michael Floyd. Is there, a, is there a, a guy that's going to put up numbers better than Michael Floyd on the 2024 roster? I don't think there's one on the 2028 roster either. I, I, <laughs> my, you know, it was really, it was fun putting it together and fun talking to them because I felt like I learned a lot about Michael Floyd that I had no idea about, you know, back in 2011, but that dude was, that dude was a freak in a lot of ways. And that's why it was fun going back and looking at his old clips because he was such a, he was a combination of so many different types of receivers. He had kind of a, you know, like when, when he was in full, running mode he kind of bent over and it wasn't a very aesthetic looking like you know, gallop yeah i mean no, it wasn't yeah, even a, it wasn't even pretty enough to be a gallop i think it was more of like a rampage well that's why i said raging bull that was part yeah. of my story that was the reference because that's kind of what it was it was like a bull run but he could be fast when he needed to be fast he broke tackles and you know i don't think in 2011 were we talking back shoulder was that a phrase yet Maybe it was. Yeah, I it was. It was. He made a lot of those catches, though. Yes. Yeah, he made a lot of those kind of catches where he his his catch radius and his ability to separate from the defender as the ball was arriving at him was tremendous. Now, catch radius came to us in 2010 because of one Bob Diaco. <laughs> That's <laughs> so true. that that did come around. That That's time. true. Yes. Now he was, uh, you know, I mean, Jane Greathouse is kind of like that a little bit but we're talking about michael freaking floyd here man. yeah I, you know if, if any of floyd's records could be broken um like 38 touchdowns as possible as a receiver because he never topped 12 i mean Jaden greathouse had five yeah. as a rookie and barely played yeah. floyd had seven um except you go pro michael floyd would have gone pro right. now um that's a tough. Yeah, the, hard, the harder number to break is golden tate's single season yardage Although yeah, that's nuts. You'll start. You can add playoff games now, and you're at you know extra games. Yeah, Floyd's hundred catches. I mean, oh, also man. remember this isn't a health. It's amazing. I'm not taking anything away from Michael Floyd, but it wasn't the healthiest offense where he's catching a hundred balls the that year. Because look, Floyd, when they had a better offense under Charlie Weiss, it's fun to say, um, eighteen point one yards a catch. When he became the man only, and it was just him and Tyler Eifert. I mean, he finished at eleven point five yards a catch. You want more? Yeah. You want him to have 80 catches at 17 yards a catch and have yeah. somebody else be able to do these things. And that's, I mean, I w I'm not yearning for the days of Michael Floyd. I'm yearning for a player like Michael Floyd, yeah. <laughs> but I thought the yeah, offense yeah. and the Tim, the interesting thing is that, and, and he, most of his career was within his first, first four years uh, with Arizona and he really upped his yards per reception. Yeah, he, that's how I think of him as a guy that gets yards per reception. Know, he not 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 really have that in Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, he didn't have that in Notre Dame. But you want to talk about crazy numbers. Go look at Larry Fitzgerald's NFL numbers. Oh, yeah. 
those are absurd. Well, Jerry Rice's are the most absurd, just to throw up. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, Jerry Rice didn't <laughs> play with Michael Floyd, so those are. I want, <laughs> I want to give, uh, I want to give one uh, shout out here to the Michael Floyd's freshman year because it's going to be hard for me to use this story again. Uh, his receiver coach was Mike um, Ionello. Rob, Rob Ionello. Sorry, Rob Ionello. Ionello. Mike, was, yeah. Mike was the Wisconsin guy. Um, I talked to him for the first time about Floyd's freshman year. My first interview, I think, with the Notre Dame assistant coach at media day. And I mentioned that 32 of Floyd's 48 receptions were outside the numbers. And if they could get some, you know, he could. If you could get some more action inside the numbers, would it make Floyd an even better player? Was that because Floyd had a limited playbook understanding? And he said, how could you possibly know that 32 catches were outside the numbers? I go, I watched his catches. He's like, that's really interesting. I was like, shouldn't you know this? <laughs> In my mind, I was like, what? <laughs> but that's what graduates, that's what all the um, analysts are for. To yeah. you know what, do you know what Robert Ionello is doing these days? JB, do you know? You probably know. You might know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He's still at Kansas? He is the general manager at Kansas, yes. Okay. Rob was a, a great dude. I don't know how yeah. good of, yeah. I don't know how good of a football coach he was, but he was a great dude. I I enjoyed yeah, Michael Floyd. Yeah, yeah, Michael Floyd. He was, pretty, <laughs> he was actually he was actually uh, watching film of Matt Carafel when he saw Michael Floyd oh, for the first time and thought, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna offer him a scholarship too. He was a couple of years younger, but anyway, you imagine seeing Floyd a Luke Keekley when you're watching somebody else and decide not to recruit him because that happened too. <laughs> for anyway, for the the people listening to our podcast that uh, would like to read this story from Michael Floyd, subscribe to Irish Illustrated, and you'll have an opportunity to do that. Uh, we have a uh, question from Refman68. Which position group stands out needing the most development in 2024? For me, it's the O-line. Yeah, that jumped out at me right away. Yeah. That was the first thing I thought of. Like, like I, I, There's room for development, obviously, in a lot of places. Um, you know, look look at what Dillon has been doing. Um, look at what Mike Brown has done through the years and the, and the progression that we already have seen from – from Jaden Greathouse and some of those, and, and Jaden Thomas when he was healthy this year, obviously was a much different player than we had seen. But the offensive line, the development of that group, uh, as we sit here and project um, whether Notre Dame is going to host and win a playoff game, the development of that group is absolutely central to the DNA of that. Uh, offensive line is 100% the answer here. Uh, the fact that they tried to get an offensive tackle in the portal and couldn't yet is I think evidence of how much development they think that position needs. Yeah. And I think the receivers did a great job of developing last year. I mean, they still need to develop, but they, right. they're, they more, they're so much more developed than they were last year. Plus they added veterans that I think that's even... the point, Tim. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I mean, I'm Jaden Thomas, Jordan Faison, Jaden Greathouse. We're not saying, Oh my God, or screwed starting those three guys right now. Nope. That's a nice three. And then you added better player, a more, more productive player in Chris Mitchell. And then, of course, Bo Collins. Like, there is no doubt there. Is, I don't I, don't start complaining about the offensive line coach. I don't care if it's Joe Moore. You are going to there is going to be a struggle with the offensive line when the season starts. You're just not experienced enough. I like the guys they have there. I think Billy Shroth is going to be difficult to unseat as a starter after Rocco Spindler was injured. And uh you know, had to sit out the last few games, but I don't know. I don't believe that there's an offensive line and coach in the country whose line would not struggle early in the year with who, with who Notre Dame has in their level of experience. So before we, de before we declare Joe Rudolph 
sucks. Understand the process of developing offensive lines. It happens every year, and it happens at every school in the country. Next question, Hayden, Hayden Adam Z, Leahy, Parsegian, Divine, and Holtz all won championships in their third seasons. Even Kelly made it to the title game in his third year. Even Brian Kelly. Wow. If Freeman follows the trend and wins it all in year three, how many parents will name baby boys Marcus? Even even one of the top five coaches. Even one of those guys. Went, went to the national championship game. Uh, Marcus, you know, uh, Tim, I'm sure you didn't forget this, but when I was working on the Michael Floyd story and looking at the Creighton-Durham guys, there was a Marcus Freeman that played for Notre Dame. He played tight end. He caught yeah, tight end. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But why didn't, when Marcus Freeman came into the picture as Notre Dame's head coach or defensive coordinator first, why didn't I make that connection? You know, there was a Marcus <laughs> Freeman that played for Notre Dame. It never occurred to me until I started researching the story. I remember Marcus Freeman, the, the tight yeah. end. Yeah. yeah. He got 14 passes for Notre Dame. Didn't he play in the NFL? Sean Powers Neal. I think he played. I think he I think did he play in the NFL too. He, play, yeah. he played more. They than all the do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all those tight ends do. It's swing a dead cat and you hit a Notre Dame tight end in the NFL. It's amazing. They're they're, they're always playing. JB, you think there's going to be a uh, heavy increase in the naming of children, Marcus? Why not Freeman? Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not, oh. why not, <laughs> why not incorporate? You know, why not? Why not Freeman? So, or or Mark? Can can you extrapolate Mark as being? That's a popular. Golden's a very good anyway. first name if you want to be cool. Golden, yeah. and he sent him yeah. to college to Notre Dame. Yeah, there you go. I'm surprised that there aren't more kids named Golden. Aren't you? It's a fine last name too, apparently in recruiting. So. Yeah, we. <laughs> I would agree with Didn't that. Oregon State have somebody named Golden, or they just have somebody named Irish. Well, they had the Irish guy. Uh, they had a yes. defensive lineman named Golden. I don't know. They had a they had a defensive corner named Storm Duck. He was good. Yeah, Al Golden as well. I mean, uh, they gold uh Golden first name for a right Oregon State D lineman. Or was so. it? Yeah. Yeah, I have a son named Tate, and I sometimes have to remind people that he's actually not named after Golden Tate because that would be weird. It would be, well, I have a son named Yag. I, 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 I don't know if I told you this, but when you name your son Tate, I thought that was a badass name, man. I love it. <laughs> it's I really easy I, name to yell. I really, I really <laughs> thought that that was a great. There was a, there was a, uh, was it Tate Armstrong that played for uh, the Bulls? Yeah. Where yeah. Did you go to school, right. Yeah. No, I really, I loved, I, I, I love your daughter's name too. Anyway, we're going to wrap up with, Predictions uh, for the uh, NFL playoffs. We're down to the final four. They don't call it final four. Uh, but Andy Fan 08 asked about Chiefs at Ravens and Lions at Tigers. No, Lions at 49ers. <laughs> I like uh, I like the Niners, and I noticed that's like a six and a half line or something. I like the Niners, and I like the Niners to cover. I am a massive Chiefs fan. I uh, celebrated their AFC Conference Championship they sent them to the Super Bowl a couple of years ago uh, with some friends on the field and some players after the game. So I will be cheering incredibly hard for the Chiefs. Uh, I'm not sure that they're winning on the road back-to-back weeks. All right. Everybody uh, knows O'Malley. You're a 49ers fan, so we know who you want to win. But I'm counting on you to say who you think will win. I do think they'll win. Um, I would be positive they would win with Debo Samuel because – 
they would be able to sustain drives uh, much more often than they will against this really good Lions defense. I do still think they'll win because I think the offense is going to look better with a week to prepare, most likely without Samuel, than it did when they found out they didn't have him midway through the first quarter, <laughs> which was just the worst yeah. time for any of those yeah, things to no happen. It didn't look them. like they didn't have him after that. Yeah, it sure did. Um, and I actually think I think the Ravens are the best team right now in football, and I think they are going to beat Mahomes and the Chiefs. And I sit here thinking to myself, am I actually rooting to try to play against Patrick Mahomes in a Super Bowl? Is that stupid enough that I really want the Chiefs to win to play the 49ers? Because I would regret it, I am sure, when he showed up out there. Um, of course, that was a bigger mismatch of quarterbacking in the Super Bowl the last time when it was Mahomes and Jimmy G. Uh, despite my house being very pro chiefs uh, because I have a teenage daughter and <laughs> yes. a 10 year old son. So it's a Mahomes Taylor Swift combination. I, I like the Ravens a lot. Um, the lions 49ers is a battle of my childhood growing up in Michigan as a lions fan for a minute until I started rooting for the 49ers because I liked winning, um, which <laughs> when I was in Ireland, somebody asked me when I told them I was a 49ers fan, but I was from Michigan, they asked me, how did that happen? I was like, well, I like Barry Sanders, but uh, the team was terrible. That person was Joe Montana. Um, <laughs> so I, I, the lions just have some like funky mojo going right now that um, I think that against my better judgment, I'm going to pick the Detroit lions to play in the freaking super bowl. Uh, in, in accordance with that, you know, picking the team that wins the most. Okay. So I'm the guy, uh, Jack would be too, but I'm the guy old enough to remember every Super Bowl. But I was really, really young. And um, you know, guess, <laughs> yeah, guess, guess which team I loved. <laughs> guess which team I loved in, you know, Super Bowl one, Super Bowl two. Of course, the Packers were the dominant team and I wanted them to win too. Anyway. Um, I don't, I don't have a pick yet against the spread on Lions 49ers. I don't care how much they win by. I think 49ers <laughs> win. I'm not sure if they cover yet. But I, 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 I think some people are going to love this. It's the year of Harbaugh, man. I think the Ravens are the best team. I think they're primed for this. Um, you know, picking against Patrick Mahomes in a, in a, in a, in a NFC championship game or AFC championship game. But He's lost that before, and he can't again. I think the Ravens are the team of destiny, and that's my top pick of the week. Is uh, Ravens minus three and a half is what I have at that. So if, if Harbaugh wins this one, there won't be an asterisk next to this championship like his brothers. Yeah. No. Nice. no, no also, I, that is how we should end it. But I have to tell our listeners that great poll by Tim Priester on Tate Armstrong. He played for the Bulls for two years, so I was not thinking of the same guy. And I want everybody listening, including all of you on this screen, to Google Tate Armstrong and look at his picture on the right side of the page when it pops up. I don't remember what, what he went to Duke, about? by the way. He went to Duke, by the way. Oh, he did he, go to Duke. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But everybody Google that and look at the glorious mustache. <laughs> Whoa, yes. That is something. Sign of the times. Sign of the times. Hey, we had a good time. We talked about a little bit of everything here today. We appreciate you joining us, guys. Thanks for being here. Until next Thursday, Tim Priester, Tim O'Malley, John Bryce, Pete Sampson, and this has been Irish Illustrated Insider.